Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Peter Hart and today I have with me as a special surprise, Gary Bain. Hello, Gary. You say it every time, Pete. It's never a surprise. It's always me. It's always you. It's somewhat depressing. I don't know what our bloody listeners think. No, 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 no. All three of them. Anyway, what are we doing today, Pete, after we're, that depressing introduction? We're more about the 16th Durham Light Infantry, that fine body of men, an ordinary infantry battalion doing amazing things during the Second World War. And today we're on, after the tragedy and the drama and the terror and horror of the Battle of Saginane, we're doing, uh, the, the well, what happened next, the advance to Tunis. Uh, would you like to bring us up to speed, Gary? Well, as you rightly say, uh, the rem- the remnants of the 16th DLI after uh, their actions at Sedjanane were brought together at the Tabarka Woods. Now, they were part of a general retreat in the Sedjanane sector in the face of probing German attacks. They're buckers for probing those Germans. And they continually outflanked or threatened to outflank the successive defensive positions which had been hurriedly taken up by the increasingly disorganised Allied forces. Now, here we've got... the Basically, the Durhams are suffering... It, it must have been awful, that sort of bitter aftertaste of defeat. They must have felt bloody awful. Uh, they'd lost so many comrades, uh, and, and they'd be worried about something else, wouldn't they? What would you be worried about in those circumstances? Well, it's human nature. They'd have some very real fears for their own personal survival. Now, one... Tom Lister, he remembered the prevailing jumpiness amongst the men in the woods. That's in Tabarka Woods, yeah. And this is Tom Lister, uh, who's in the MT section of the headquarters company. And he says this, It was later when we got there. It was getting dark and it was raining. I was to share a two-man bivvy. That, that meant three in a two-man bivvy. <laughs> Stuck on a hillside in the woods. I got in with a lance corporal. He was in a terrible, nervous state. He would never have made a soldier if he lived to be 90. The slightest thing was upsetting him. And there was a, a Corporal Oliver. He was more of a friend of mine. <laughs> it was cramped enough with two, but to get a third one in, and it was pretty wet. You, you could be the best friends in the world, but they're not too glad to see you. There was a little miniature hurricane lamp, but it, it wasn't lit. I had to move it so I could get my head down on my pack. 
They were partially stripped. I was fully dressed. I just flopped down in between them with a blanket. We settled down and all was peace. Then there was a rustling sound and Oliver says, Got a match? Took a match and lit the little hurricane lamp and held it up, half raised. He says, It's a snake! And the Lance Corporal jumped up full height and took the tent with him. And the rain was coming down in torrents outside. Oh, God, the whole area was in an uproar. They were shouting and bawling, and I never saw any damned snake. I grabbed me gear and withdrew, found a truck, crawled underneath, and settled down there for the night. That's, uh, and you can see, they're jumpy. Yeah. Now, on the 11th of March, in the aftershocks of Sedgenain, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Ware was uh, peremptorily replaced... I I crossed that out. I wasn't going to try and say that. (laughs) ...by Lieutenant Colonel Johnny Preston, a plain-spoken Yorkshireman. Oh. We know lots of of (laughs) plain-spoken... Hello, James Thompson. (laughs) ...who'd been second in command of the 2nd 4th King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry. Fine body of men, though. K-O-Y-L-I. K-O-Y-L-I. Now, Preston was not particularly military in his personal appearance. Well, you're an ex-soldier and you're not particularly military in your... Being neither tall nor straight-backed. Approachable and friendly in his manner, he certainly liked to drink. Oh, I know somebody like that as well. But confined such indulgences to opportunities out of the line. Yeah. Now, his men really, uh, the, they appreciated the interest he took in, in their welfare, like like every officer should, of course. It's a standard. But most of all, they liked the fact he was tactically brilliant. He was really good at the tactics at battalion level. Uh, and and it, he would use tactics to reduce casualties and maximise the effect of the battalion. It's a bit unfortunate. We better just say here what happened to Richard Ware. I don't think he was a bad colonel, and I don't think what happened at Sedgenane was his fault. Uh, we told the story of the battle last time. Did you think he stood a chance? It wasn't his fault. He was doing a reconnaissance before he was, it. He was, wasn't there, was he, for it, it the start of it? It perhaps shouldn't have taken all the uh, uh, yes. commanding uh, officers of the companies with him, but they were in reserve. It, I, I think I think he was quite hard treated. But there's, uh, there's somebody else who's arrived to join the battalion as well, isn't there, who, who be, would become the colonel after Preston. Uh, you know, in a year's time. Who's this? Spoiler. Oh, sorry. Yeah, just a short time before, Major Dennis Worrell had joined the battalion. Now, in peacetime, he was a gentleman farmer from Dorset, or a pirate, in fact. And he'd been originally commissioned into the Dorsetshire Dorsetshire Regiment. I put my teeth in. Now, he was a well-built jolly chap. You're a well-built jolly chap. Mm. And he would become the battalion's second in command. Now, another new officer, and one that I I well remember interviewing, he he was just outside Guildford. We had a lot of trouble yesterday trying to remember where it was, but I well remember it. (laughs) Yeah, at one stage, didn't we say Guernsey was just outside London? (laughs) Yeah. Well, who is this? Well, it's Captain Viz Vizard. His first name was Arthur, uh, but... The, the imaginative nickname, Viz, Viz Vizard, a cracking bloke. He'd been born in Stroud Green and he had a, a tragic background. Do you, do you remember what I told you a bit about it? Well, he'd suffered the early loss of his father, who was killed serving with the 9th Australian Battalion in October 1918. Now, uh, he had been educated at the Royal British uh, Orphan School and worked as an office boy uh, and turn an auditor for a hotel firm. And then he was recruited and trained as a territorial on the Vickers machine gun with the 8th Middlesex Regiment. Just as a private originally. Uh, yeah, he's, and he was, he got early promotion, became company quartermaster sergeant. He was a good 
bloke, you know. And he was eventually commissioned and posted to the 7th Machine Gun Battalion, Middlesex Regiment, in Northern Ireland. Now, here he distinguished himself in a manner which I could only... <laughs> sort of point out to and say, hurrah, what did he do, Gary? Well, he demonstrated that he was entirely suited to be an officer <laughs> by misreading a map and accidentally crossing the neutral era border with his three machine gun sections. What happened? Well, that went down really well and they were taken to the local police station and detained for three days <laughs> before being released. So he was uh, rather under a cloud when he was posted away to the uh, 70th, uh, that was the Young Soldiers, uh, Durham Light Infantry, which was acting as a demonstration battalion at Westwick Camp. Finally, Viz was sent into uh, uh, with a large draft out to join the 16th DLI in early March 1943. Now, he'd done some preparation for this, had Viz Vizard. Uh, he'd, uh, and and, and uh, you're going to be, uh, you're going to read it in his actual voice because he was a bit of a cockney lad. So go, go, Gary. And this is Captain Arthur Vizard of E Company at this time. Yeah, extra company, training company. I had to take speech training. I took it in Darlington before I left the UK. Why, I, Bonnie lad, I learned myself proper Geordie. I had to. For the first six months, they didn't know what I was talking about, and I didn't know what they were talking about. You had to know their culture. If you could sing some of the Geordie songs, it was very very popular in the evening when things were quiet. It took a little while to become fully accepted. Are you saying that not all Northerners are friendly and accepting of Southerners? Mm. (laughs) Now, Vizard would uh, prove to be a competent and popular officer. Now, um, after Sedgenane, it it was a disaster. There weren't many left, and the survivors emerged into two composite companies and, and it's just chaos and do you know what when we try to 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 rebuild this for my book which is called foot sloggers yeah um it was difficult and even the original battalion history and the wall diary and everything bloody else is quite vague on this uh one company's under dennis worrell and that's uh, that gets into action uh, near the railway viaduct at tamara and and let's just get, have a should we just have a taster of this shall we uh so who am i going to recount from uh, this is Private Charles Palmer of the Intelligence Section, so suits you, sir, of HQ Company. And he'd been uh, pressed into service on an ammunition carrying party. He said this, and this is classic army. Regimental Sergeant Major Thomason asked for someone to collect ammunition. We were handy. I want some volunteers. You and you. <laughs> We moved out and we were shell moving up this little uh, stream uh, valley, obviously in full view of the enemy. The shelling went on and I knew that it was getting pretty near. You can always tell because you could hear the whistle. That's when you get down. This chap with me had just joined the section. He was behind me. I said, drop. He did drop right on top of me. I was not flat. I was three quarters down already. The shell had hit him, a big piece of shrapnel, because he was dead. He'd had his head blown off. That was my first experience of being with somebody when they were killed. It affected me very much indeed. I still remember it vividly, and it's not something I can push out of my mind. It's still there, and I'd like to remind you that this is 70 years after the event uh, when we recorded this. That night we went up and we had to bury him there and then. We dug a slit trench, you put the body in, and you put some sort of, some kind of cross there. That had to be recorded. The map reference had to be given. So when it was possible, these bodies could be removed and given a proper burial. Well, that's a, a story. Mm. Now, um, 
On the 17th of March, Germans attack again on the French and British positions around about Tamara Station. And here they managed to penetrate uh, the front uh, held by the 2nd, 5th Sherwood Foresters. Now, you don't know this, Gary, but I also, I was so in, it was so complex, Italy and North, that I did a whole project on the 2nd, 5th Sherwood Foresters as well. And we may, we may, may well be coming back to them another time. Um, they, they, they were pushed back by a counterattack by the Foresters, but they did smash their way through by late afternoon. Uh, now, the 16th um, DLI are sent up uh, the, the, as company reinforcements. And who should get sent up, Gary? Who should get sent up? Well, uh, Viz found himself sent forward to help extract the remnants of the foresters. And this is Captain Arthur Vizard. I got sent off from one set of hills to another set of hills. The second fifth foresters had got into some trouble. They'd had a bad time with mortaring and they'd sustained a lot of casualties. Most of the casualties were holed up in a place called Maison Blanche, the White House, and I was told to go and get them out. I waited until nightfall and moved up. I had a bit of trouble with one sergeant who was a tragic situation. He said it was suicide to go forward any further towards the White House. I said, well, we've got our orders. He said, well, I'm not going. I had to send him back to B Echelon. He was a very popular sergeant, much respected by his chaps. If he'd gone round saying that uh, what we were doing was suicide, they would probably believe him and not me. His views would have influenced all his men. They trusted him, as they should. But he was a fine fellow. He was K-O-Y-L-I. He got an MN and was killed later on. We moved forward. It wasn't easy. Small arms fire from Jerry we could see up on the hill. We'd gone through the village of Tamara and we came under quite a bit of fire there and I lost three men. It was a shock to me. Training had been useful because I'd got used to bullets whistling by me and over my head. What I wasn't used to was bullets hitting people. That was new to me. It was a shock always to see your comrades drop down. But it is one of those things you've got to get used to. We crept into this White House and there were a lot of badly wounded men there. I had stretcher bearers with me. It was nightfall. The colonel was there. His headquarters was still there. I said to him, well, we're going out, sir. What about your wounded? He said, we'll bring as many as we can, but I think there will be some that we can't take. We'll have to leave them. And we did. We could watch Jerry digging, digging in. I could see the moon shining on the entrenchment tools up there on the hill. But we got out 50 or 60. The majority of them were walking wounded, but some of them we carried out. Now, it's quite a I'm, uh, the, the, I like, I like he's, so, he's so thoughtful in what he says about, you know, in training, you, you can get used to bullets flying around, not them hitting people, the thud and, and, and your mates dropping down. Now, um, so what happens? Well, they're, they're, they're in and out of the line. What's left them? They're, they're not really doing that much uh, because, because they're buggered, aren't they? As a battalion, there's not much left. Um, uh, but they're beginning to get several reinforcement drafts, aren't they? Uh, they're coming from various other light infantry regiments. They've been sent from here, there, so the Duke of Cornwall's, all of the light infantry, King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry. Now, they're meant to be that was meant to be temporary, but you know what the army's like. <laughs> they all get absorbed, don't they? And uh, and Vizard, he, he's done well, hasn't he? Uh, he is, and he's reward, rewarded for his good early shine. He's promoted to major and command of A Company. Now, during this period, the 16th DLI was loaned 
to various divisions. And this is Major Arthur Vizard, now of A Company. Johnny Preston used to make a joke about it because he'd taken over what was really the remnants of the battalion. After Sejanane, the battalion became not ineffective, but unable to fight battles on its own. We spent our time coming to the assistance of other units who were threatened. He used to say, Is your base secure? If not, send for the 16th DLI. He was more or less farming out companies to support. And, and this, but this, we, we haven't got time to say, because often they are just providing a base company. So just uh, a solid base uh, uh, that the other battalion could operate from. Uh, but eventually uh, they are involved in one quite a big battle when they're, uh, they're, they're attached to the 128 uh, Hampshire Brigade. For, for It's part of a bigger attack by 46th Division. And, and they do gain it. And at three o'clock in the morning on 22nd of April, uh, they're going to move forward on a, a big front Battalions leading the way, and they, they're, they're going to move forward. This be on the map that we'll doubtless not put up, but it doesn't matter. You just need, with oral history, you just need to get the feel. They're going to push out, uh, break through the hills in front of the Gulab, Gubalat, Gubalat, I'm going for, plain, uh, to allow the armoured divisions through to Corsia, Corsia, that's another place. Now, the 16th DLI would be attacking a strong, well defended position on the Sidi Barker Hill on the right of the attack. Now, amongst them was Tony Sacco, born of Italian origins in Durham, who worked in the family ice cream shop in Langley Moor before he was called up and trained as a signaller. Now, the two forward companies crossed the start line at 0340 and a thunderous barrage came down on the German positions. And this is Private Tony Sacco of the Headquarters D Company. We prepared for the attack and marched to a position. The intelligence section came with a long white tape. Right, get behind this tape. <laughs> we were told to line up in a great long line. I thought that this was really funny. Then the bombardment started. Our artillery. They started shelling the Je- Jebel Barker. Plastering it. The shells were screaming over. Uh, well, I thought, this is great. There'll be no one left alive on that mountain. Then we got the orders to advance. I suppose it was something like the First World War. I felt great. Somehow, I didn't feel frightened. Well, <laughs> Now, at first, it all goes really well, but Private Tony Sacco goes on to say... When we got to the foot of the Jebel Barker, Sergeant Major Wales said... Well, we're not finished yet. We've got to go up the top of it and then swing right. Everybody got into positions and we swung right, leading onto a kind of plateau. We got there and these spandows opened up. They got quite a few with the first burst. We were completely pinned down, absolutely couldn't move. Then he started with the mortars on us. We were pressed to the ground. Sergeant Major Wales was dying. He was maybe four yards from me. In the end, he was crying for his mother. It was terrible. Terrible. He died of his wounds. Wow, that's awful. It gets worse. Now, after the battle, Jimmy James would find the corpse of Sergeant Major Wilson Wells, and it was a macabre sight that affected him deeply. And this is Company Quartermaster Sergeant Jimmy James of D Company. And this is, I find this very, very moving. Uh, He said, I found Sergeant Major Wells in the long grass. A mortar bomb had exploded right at the side of him and took half his back away. I'd seen him often in the sergeant's mess in England, asleep in the chair with his head in the palm of his hand. But then I found him like that on the battlefield, dead with his head in the palm of his hand, resigned to dying, having taken off his battle dress top tunic to look at his back. 
There was an enormous hole in his back. Scarab beetles by the hundred marched out when I disturbed his body. I've never forgotten that, and I'm well, not bloody I'm not surprised. surprised, no. The city Barker had a false crest, so as D Company breasted the ridge, they came under fire from German positions above them, and half concealed by the uh, cactus. Tony Sacco, he was in real trouble. You were completely pinned down. I was playing it... I was praying to St. Jude, a prayer my sister gave to me. You couldn't do a thing. You were just lying flat. We must have been there for about two or three hours. Oh, I might be exaggerated. Every time we made a move, the Spandaus would open up. We were really in a terrible position. One of the stretcher bearers was shouting, It's another Sejanine! It's another Sejanine! The Germans were on an eight-foot kind of ridge. They had complete command we had no chance at all of getting it as it got light the german fire gained in accuracy to make matters worse on the b company front they encountered a ring of deadly anti-personnel s mines all along that ridge the durhams were in a desperate situation the four troops were too near the german positions for an effective artillery shoot and a promised tank support had been delayed by mines and uh, once more, you're going to tell us what Private Tony Sacco says. Well, eventually they have to get out, and this is what happened, Sacco says. Then Major Duffy eventually got onto the colonel. The order was, at the count of three, everybody up on their feet and make back to a gully about 60 to 100 yards down the hill. We got to three, and we all leapt up. Then we started floundering. There was me, Gaffney, and a chap called Thompson. I was carrying the... Well, it's a wireless set. I'd lost a toss. <laughs> Whoever lost the, lost the toss had to carry the set. Thompson on my right, he got shot in the legs, but he managed to keep going, and we got to this gully. Wow. Wow. Now, at eight o'clock, Preston dispatched Arthur Vizard and an A Company to fill round the right flank of the hill. Using a lot of smoke from the mortars, Vizard pressed forward. And this is Major Arthur Vizard. I was making for a sort of cleft in the hills. I was making for that. When I got there, it was strongly held on either flank. I said to my second-in-command, Tom Logan, you take that side, I'll take this side. I called up and asked for some mortar fire on my side. We went in and attacked. It was pretty rough. We overpowered them. We got into these dugouts. There were fellows still in there. One jabbed at me with his bayonet. It opened up a large gash in my right thigh before I shot him in the leg with my rifle. I never shot anyone to kill them deliberately that I could have saved their lives, unless they were likely to shoot me. I didn't see the point of it. You disabled them, took them prisoner. I wasn't angry, you see. I think that's that's very uh, good, because a, a lot of soldiers don't take chances, do they? Well, I don't think you can take that sort of chance. Yeah, well, he did. <sighs> now, that night, the Germans had withdrawn and the whole of Sidi Barker was under control. George Lyons, who'd only recently been posted in from the KOYLI, found his first experience of battle, a harrowing ex experience. And this is Private George Lyons. I went back and helped with some of the wounded. At the end of the gully, I met a young lad of my age who was badly wounded, with half his behind blown off by shrapnel. His name was Crosby, and I knew he was dying as he was losing too much blood. Uh, so much blood. I tried to comfort him, and his last words were, Please, George, give me a drink of water, which I gladly did, and held his head up for a drink. But he passed away as I held him, and bled to death. We dug a grave for him there, and buried him there on the mountain. 
We placed his rifle with the bayonet attached and stuck it in the ground beside him so the follow-up troops would know he was there and that could reclaim the body and bury it more formally. Wow. Now, after a period of rest, while still in the city Barker, on the 25th of April, the 16th DLI reverted to 139th Brigade, moving to join them at Jebel Besiud. And at this point, we'll take a short break. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. On 30th of April, the brigade moved up to take up positions near the Salt Lake and facing the Jebel Bukurnine, a prominent feature bequeathed the name of Twin Tits by the soldiery. Now, I wonder why. Soldiers name things what they see, you know, bare arsehole. And so you can, twin, you can imagine it, can't you? That's a welcome bit of humour in this somewhat depressing uh, account. <laughs> Uh, but there's good news to come. On the night of the 6th of the May, uh, the, the Durham's, they could hear the roar of the barrage and attacks going in on uh, Mejez el-Bab. And next day, there's a bit of a surprise to James Corr, uh, who'd been sent out with a, with an ambush platoon. Now, I'm not quite certain on the timing of this, but uh, this is what he thought happened. And, and you're going to be James Corr, who's in B Company. It would be about four o'clock in the afternoon, and I saw shadows coming towards me. Well, you couldn't move. You were right underneath these twin tits. I peered over the top and there were two engineers. We shouted, for Christ's sake, get yourself down. And they started to laugh. He says, it's over. We were lying there and the North African campaign was over. All the battalion was back where we'd left and enjoying themselves. Nobody had thought to come and tell us it was all over. 
there. That was uh, the authentic voice of the British soldier, not complaining, but observing. Observing. Quite a lot. A lot. <laughs> now, the Allies had broken through and captured Tunis and Bizerta. With all hope gone, the Axis forces surrendered over the next few days. Now, on 20th of uh, May, uh, the Durhams had called in to provide a, a squad for the Tunis Victory Parade. Uh, how do you think they reacted to that? Well, a lot of them were delighted to cause the usual chaos through their light infantry marching speed. Now, we talked about this in an earlier... People, uh, you've got to realise that light infantry march at a completely different pace. It's uh, 140 as opposed to 120, is it? Yeah. Who am I going to You're be? You're making that up now. You're going to be Company Quartermaster Sergeant Jimmy James of D Company. I was detailed to be right marker. There must have been at least 40 of us. The night before, we went with our detachment to the scrublands just outside the city. Each of us was given a one-man bivvy, a ground sheet and a blanket. We had smart new khaki drill uniforms to wear for the parade. We knew the parade was going to be on the news, Pathé Gazette. We saw the cameras along the route. It was, va- it was a vast, tremendous, wonderful parade. Well, where they all came from, I, I don't know. We were marching at 140 paces to the minute as DLI at the trail. That's with their rifles at the trail. We were behind the guards. They had their own music and they were strictly 90 paces to the minute. We were marching time for a long time, allowing them to go on before we marched again at 140 paces per minute, drawing applause from the crowds. We were the Durhams. Bet they were popular with the guards. Oh, yeah. And they were marking time for quite a lot of time, I should imagine. Yeah. What did I say? Marching. I wish I'd just. Now, on the 1st of June. The 16th DLI began a well-earned rest period at Hammam Lif, a seaside town some 10 miles from Tunis. Now, by then, Johnny Preston had begun to make his mark. Preston was not just a brilliant tactical soldier and leader of men. He also had the knack of maintaining morale, sometimes using unorthodox methods to raise a smile. Have you got any examples of that you'd like to bring before us, Gary? Well, Major Arthur Vizard has, and he says this. Colonel Johnny Preston kept our spirits alive. He was a cheerful man. When we paused for two days, he gathered Arab children. There was still a lot around. He gathered a group of about 20 and he taught them to sing, You Are My Sunshine. They had no idea what these words meant. They copied the sounds. He was very proud and he stood there and conducted, You Are My Sunshine. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. That's for the benefit of the listeners who are too young. Now, that whimsical smile and those twinkling blue eyes, he was a great character. The troops loved it, thought it was magnificent. They had all these Arab kids on their laps. Chocolate was given to them. You like chocolate? Now, 2nd of June, Churchill, uh, accompanied by a foreign secretary, that was Anthony Eden, later a prime minister, not for long, <laughs> um, they paid a visit to Hammond Le- Le- Leaf. Um, uh, and and uh, d- what do you think, did, did, would, it, would it be a sort of off-the-cuff visit? No, heaven and earth was moved to ensure that there were thousands of troops drawn up to line the road uh, as Churchill and his retinue drove up. Uh, how did it go? <laughs> well, sadly, the planned show of loyalty didn't quite go as anticipated. The men, and uh, this is in true military fashion, had been left standing, broiling in the blazing heat for hours on end. So the result was probably predictable, How would really. you have reacted? Oh, I'd have observed. Yeah, and this is what 
private Gordon Ghent MT Section A Company observed. They took us out in trucks early morning, thousands of blooming troops from all over the place, and we lined up each side of the road just outside the town. We were told that when Churchill and his retinue came along, we want you to cheer and throw your hats in the air. Well, we stood, and we stood. It was getting hotter and hotter and hotter and bloody hotter. By gum, it was roasting. <laughs> there we stood on that flaming road. No shelter. It was 11 o'clock when he came, and we'd been there from 8 o'clock in the morning. They just drove slowly along in their bloody big limousine. The only people that cheered and threw their hats in the air were the officers. The word had gone along the line. We're not cheering. After treating us like that, bugger Churchill. They couldn't arrest us all. That, again, is a common view of soldiery. They can't arrest all, arrest all of us. No, that's it. <laughs> now, on the 14th of June, the DLI began the process of long-term rebuilding with a move all the way back to Bleeder in Algeria. Yeah, they've got lots of drafts by then. They're coming from uh, the UK and there's lots of keen young NCOs and officers. And and, and this is where we, 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 we meet a great character uh, who you're going to play, Gary. Uh, so you're going to be one of the heroes of this podcast series. And who is that? Who are you going to be? You're going to be Russell Collins. Now, give us just an outline of his background. Well, he was only just 20. He was the son of a farmstead owner from Truro. That's in Cornwall. His, uh, his fa- no, no, Gary. <laughs> his family wasn't that well off, but he was bright. And after attending Bodmin County Grammar School, he studied the sciences at Exeter University from 1940 to 42. Yeah, he didn't do that well, though. He's a bit preoccupied. He was busy in the officer's training corps and home guard. And, uh, and eventually, in August 1942, he's called up to Bodmin Barracks uh, uh, and he's identified as a prospective officer. Yeah, and he's eventually commissioned into the Duke of Cornwall's Light Infantry. Ah, now, after more training, he was sent off with a draft aboard the Britannic to Algiers in June 1943. From there, he was dispatched to command the machine gun section, support company with the 16th DLI. Now, he was a, he was conscious that he was a boy in a man's army. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah. He's, he's, yeah, tell us what he thinks. Uh, at this stage, it's Second Lieutenant Russell Collins of the support company. I looked very young in those days. I was just barely 20 and rather small of stature. I was told subsequently that one of the sergeant majors said to his company commander, God, sir, they're sending boys out to us now. When I was put in charge of the Vickers, that's a heavy piece of equipment, even when it's stripped down into its element, the tripod and the barrel, they weigh something like 60, 70, 80 pounds each. We had to go out on exercise and they had to be carried up into the fire positions up over the jebbles. <laughs> a bit of bravado, really, setting off, leading the way, carrying one of these bits and there was a certain amount of smirking behind me that I was going to crumble under the load. In fact... I kept up very well. I managed it. Yeah, and that's that's symptomatic of the man. He was uh, he would prove to be a great officer. There's another one though. Who else is joining them? 
Well, Ronald Sherlaw, who was the uh, son of a brick manufacturer from Morpeth. That's yeah. up north. Aye, right. That's even more north than Newcastle. Aye. Uh, he'd, uh, he'd, he'd run a scholar. He'd been scholarship to a grammar school. He'd done OTC training. And, uh, he, well, basically, he'd been lots of time as a private in the Royal Army Paint Corps. Then he'd uh, got, been sent for basic infantry training with the Durhams at Bransforth Castle. Me and you went visited that. And that was a depot. Then he'd gone the 14th day. Ally at Shorncliffe, and then he was uh, commissioned in December 1942. And uh, after a bit of time as a platoon commander with them, he'd been uh, transferred and sent off to join uh, to C Company with the Durham 16th DLI with a draft, one of yeah. the many drafts. And now, although he had considerable experience in training back in England, he knew he still had uh, a lot to learn. And this is what Lieutenant Ronnie Sherlaw with C Company said. I think that's the first thing you feel when you come dry into a fighting regiment. There are people there who know a bit more about the game than you do. I certainly had to rely considerably on my sergeant and some of the other NCOs. And that is crucially important. If you want to be a good officer, when you arrive at a unit, you've got to lean on your platoon sergeant. You've got to make sure that you form a good relationship with him, yeah. Now, another notable officer to join the 16th DLI uh, was Jerry Barnett, who was the son of a cotton mill finisher. What's that, Gary? It's somebody in the mill that finishes things. Oh, yes. Now, he'd won a scholarship to the grammar school in Leyland before studying at the School of Architecture in Liverpool in 1940. Fine football team. Now, he was active in both the uh, Senior Training Corps and the Leyland Home Guard, and he enlisted in the Royal Fusiliers before being commissioned and posted to the 14th DLI in Paynton in January 1943. And from there, he was posted on a draft to the 16th DLI. So, he was also in C Company. So, what does he say, Lieutenant Jerry Barnett? You're going to play this. For the first time, I had a platoon, a real platoon. I had charge of 13 platoon in C Company. I tried to do the right thing. I wrote all their names in the book, talked to them all individually, and wrote down notes about what they were in peacetime. They were not all from Durham by any means. Some were from South Wales and Yorkshire. A lot of them were miners or in similar jobs in peacetime. Some were hardly into jobs as they were all of a very young age. They were all good chaps. The sergeant and I were mates, really. There was no social distinction except in the unit where they called you sir. We were all in the same boat. I called him sergeant. Well, it's standard, isn't it, in the army? Yeah. Um, they've all got to be bedded down. All these drafts are coming from all over the bloody place. They've all got to be bedded into the battalion. So what do you think happens? The old training routine. Uh, so what, they, what is that? Let's just go through it again. Well, basic fitness had to be achieved, so daily drill sessions and route marches begin. You used to love daily drill. And while route. the specialists were busy learning their trades. Yeah, and this all built up to a series of really arduous tactical exercises in the Atlas Mountains. That sounds hilly. There's a clue in the... In the t- <laughs> Well, there's two clues, Atlas and Mountains. <laughs> right. So a lot of marching, uh, and, uh, and uh, it was just, you know, really good. Now, the tented camp at Bleeder well, uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't conducive to good health. Uh, and what do you think they began to get? Well, a variety of unpleasant complaints, and one was uh, certainly not unusual for British soldiers in the Middle East. And this is Lance Corporal William Ver of 12 Platoon B Company. There was dysentery flying about. Flies! <laughs> It wasn't very pleasant going to the latrines at all. You were tickled to death. 
I'll tell you, the latrines there were just a, a row of boxes with lids on and a canvas screen round. Every three or so, there would be a fly trap, which was like a cone of gauze with a piece of watermelon or something like that. The flies would fly out of the latrine and fly up into this trap and couldn't get out. That used to be full of flies. Now, there was also the scourge of desert sores, great carbuncles that seemed to gnaw into the flesh, leaving terrible, long-lasting scars. And once more, you're going to be Lance Corporal William Ver. Most people got those. They'd start off as a blister, and then it seemed to eat in, like an ulcer, really. The flies wouldn't leave it alone. You had to get it bandaged up and dressed. They used to dose it with gentian violet. I've still got the scars now. And you might remember from the South, not to Sars, any desert, that the great, like, carbuncles eating into your leg and, and the scars were still there. Many a veteran showed me the scars of carbuncles on their arms and legs. Now after rebuilding the battalion was once again considered ready for action and on the 11th of August the 16th DLI and the rest of 139th Brigade were transported aboard the Banfara from Algiers to Bizerta and it proved to be a, a pretty unpleasant journey. Now you're going to tell us what Private Robert L. Ellison of uh, D Company said. The whole brigade was on this boat and very quickly everybody seemed to get dysentery or similar types of things. If they weren't being sick, they were galloping at the other end. At the bow of the ship was where the toilets were and that was absolutely a wash. I don't think the toilets had been working for donkey's years. They couldn't flush anything away. Guess whose platoon was given the job of cleaning that up before we got off the boat? Number 18 platoon. We were bailing that out and putting it out through the porthole. We got the task done eventually, but it was terrible. Think he complained? Never. He's observing. Observing, yeah. Now, the battalion were at Berserta. They went into a tented camp in an olive grove just behind the port. Uh, what do you think that uh, might have made life interesting there? Uh, well, there were regular German air raids. That'd make things interesting. <laughs> and this is Private Gordon Ghent of MT Section A Company. When the jerry planes came over, we went up to the top of the hill to watch the fireworks. The bombs were dropping and the anti-aircraft fire from the ships. Wow. These planes used to come over and the sky was lit up with the searchlights from all the ships. When they got onto him, the German plane, there was beams going on from every which way and they never got out of it. Down they would come in flames, poor devils. Then we heard a whacking great thud, very near. We thought, to hell with this, we'd better get shelter. That was a bomb. <laughs> now, even without the best efforts of the Germans, the British soldier could be a danger to himself and those around him. This was demonstrated in truly spectacular fashion by Ken Lovell while attempting to uh, uh, keep down in the uh, primitive latrines. The chosen method was to throw in petrol and light it. Yeah, ba basically, they're, they're trying to... They're just trying to clean the latrine out and stop the smell and uh, get rid of something. Uh, what do you think might go wrong if you throw petrol well, in? Well, there's a number of things that could go wrong. And he's trying to keep the germs down. Other, in the notes, you've put Germans. Yes, I noticed that. I was just trying to help. I was trying to work out what I'd meant. <laughs> and this is Private Ken Lovell of 17 Platoon well, D so Company. I want you to imagine me pouring a large amount of petrol into a latrine and then a light... Lit match. What would happen? There was a hell of a whoosh and a bloody great sheet of flame shot up towards me. I thought the most sensible thing would be to jump through it because the wind was blowing the flames towards me. I, ju 
can tell what's going to happen here. I jumped, but instead of landing right on top of one of the oil drums that that's that, that made up the thing, I landed on the reverse slope with my steel shod sloops. I didn't have much chance, and despite all my efforts, I fell back and with a splash landed in the shit. They say the more you stir it, the more it stinks. I can assure you that's true. Fortunately, I went in with such a thump that it spread the burning petrol away from me, and one of my lads grabbed my hand and pulled me out. I wasn't burnt, but my hair was singed a bit. I walked a few hundred yards to the sea, and I just laid down in the sea for a, for about two hours till I was cleansed. <laughs> I did have to have a complete new set of khaki drill. Why is it funny when people fall in the shit, Gary? <laughs> On a more serious note... Oh, all right. The 16th DLI were getting ready for the next major operation, uh, which it was soon apparent would involve an opposed landing. And it was not difficult to work out where it might be. Italy! Good guess. Major Arthur Vizard of A Company says this. We began some fairly hard training... The officers and warrant officers were given an idea of their future target by being taken to a geographical formation, the silhouette of which resembled what we ultimately found when we got ashore. We were told that this was such and such a place and the outline of what we were expected to do. Nobody told us where it was, but everybody had guessed that it would be Italy. Two weeks of fairly intensive preparation for the tasks that were to be set us. In the meantime, the rifle companies carried on some pretty hard work. We'd never been as well equipped since we'd come abroad. We were really given everything that we could possibly have asked for in the way of clothing, boots, uh, with a warning from the colonel that if we got the boots wet, we should not get any further boots for three weeks after arrival. The weapons and armaments that had become depleted during the African fighting were all replaced. Fantastic. How do you do a landing without getting your boots wet? Yes. (laughs) Some of them manage it, actually. Now, um, there was also a briefing for the key personnel of 46th Division. All the senior officers, majors and the like, were gathered together. A senior naval officer, who I couldn't quite work out how it was, he sounds a right character. Uh, And one of those there was Viz Vizard. What does he say? Uh, The officers, warrant officers and senior NCOs of the leading companies went to the cinema. Big cinema, it was. And there must have been 800 fellows in there. He gave an address and he had some maps. They weren't very detailed maps, but we were destined for what was known as Green Beach. He went through what they intended to do. And he was an amusing fellow. He wound up the speech by saying, Well, gentlemen, that's about all. There are too many of you to take questions. I'm not going to guarantee that my buddies will actually land you on Green Beach. But sure as hell, I can guarantee that we will land you in the right country. Bastard. <laughs> oh, dear. Now, on the last night before they left, they had a really big party uh, to, to, to dispose of all the uh, surplus alcohol, surplus, that they couldn't take with them. It, it was quite a do. It really was. And this is what I'm surprised he remembers anything. But Lieutenant Jerry Barnett of C, of C Company remembered. We had to drink up the floating ration of whiskey and beer that we couldn't take with us. So we had rather a drunken party. We played drinking games. Cardinal Puff was a popular one. You have to say a funny rhyme. I drink to the health of Cardinal Puff. And if you got it wrong, you have to empty your glass. At the same time, you have to tap on the table. 
You're bound to forget something. So they have to drink the glass and start again. Eventually, chaps fell off their chairs, dead drunk. Now, one thought's uppermost in their mind. They wouldn't be human. They're thinking, oh, we're about to make an opposed landing on Italy against the Germans or whoever. And and Jerry Barnett, he's quite a sensitive bloke. And what's going through his mind is, would he be able to cope? And I think this last quote, it's the last for today. I think it's brilliant for just summing up what's going through their minds. And you're going to tell us what Jerry thought. There was apprehension. Dread really is a better word. The prospect of going into action. I think you get through it mainly by being too ashamed to show that you couldn't get through it. I think that's the only thing that holds you together. You dare not, for your own self-respect, give way to the fear. We've been brought up between the two wars with knowledge of war, really in a sort of boy's own paper context of bravery, heroism and leadership. The kind of attitude that you don't send a man where you daren't go yourself. For a while, that is the only sort of moral code you use. It's not bravery, it's just doing what you're expected to do. It's a ridiculous experience to have to face. Every instinct you have is to either hide in your hole and not come out of it or even to look or run away. That's what any sensible person would do. But of course you can't. It's your duty to your comrades. And I think that's the key, isn't it? To what That's what this whole podcast series is about, how people cope with this fear. That is a fantastic quote. It is. And, uh, of course, they'd, they'd soon know, wouldn't they? Because it's only a few days, well, a few days after that, they go into action, and terrible action it is. Uh, and you'll find out all about that as we talk about the Salerno landings next on Pete and Gary's Military History. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?